congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we come to the conclusion of our time in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as we come to the conclusion, now I, I read a lot of context there, but beginning at verse 19, verse 18 and 19, we are reminded that this is, in fact, a letter. It can be tempting in a letter like Paul's letter to the Ephesians to think that it is, first of all, a doctrinal discourse or simply giving instructions about how we think about the way individuals are saved. And it can be easy to forget that Paul was writing at a particular time and place to particular people with particular concerns in mind. And I want you to notice, especially at the end of this letter, how Paul is concerned that the church he's writing to pray for him. In verse 18, he begins this exhortation to the church to pray in general, to pray with all supplication for all the saints. That's a very broad exhortation that because of the spiritual fight God's people are in, they are called to pray. But then he says in verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians is a letter. Well, why does that matter? Well, one of the things we often do when we uh, sort of divide up how we read different portions of Scripture is we think of the Old Testament as being full of a bunch of stories. There's drama, there's interesting things happening, there are events. We might think of the Gospels this way, though often there we don't. And when it comes to the letters of Paul, well, we think this is very far removed from a story. It's just a bunch of doctrinal teaching is how we often feel. But the letterness of the letter reminds us that Paul is writing in the middle of a story. That we ought to hear Paul's letter in this way. Not, first of all, as doctrinal teaching, though it includes that. But we ought to hear Paul's letter as saying, a tremendous event has happened. Something has happened that has changed the world. Ephesians is announcing the very turning point of history. The event that is changing and shaping all of reality. And his letter is written to explain, now what? How should we live? What does life look like? What are we confessing by faith? What are we doing now that this is the great event that has happened? The death and resurrection of Jesus is the very turning point of history. And Paul is writing at a dramatic moment in that story. In fact, what is the main reminder in this conclusion that he is writing at a dramatic moment? Well, when Paul there requests prayer, there's a particular reason he needs prayer. He is in a situation that makes it difficult for him to proclaim all of this boldly. He says in verse 20 about the gospel, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul has been imprisoned for this gospel, and he's seeking prayer in the midst of that dramatic story. Now, just saying that much, it can all feel kind of far away. Sure, that was Paul's experience then. But why is it the case that when the gospel was proclaimed, that the one proclaiming the gospel in all of its power, all of its glory, what God had done in Christ, did so from a position of weakness? Well, Paul here is simply following the path of Christ. And the fact that Paul reflects the path of Christ ought to remind all of us that we are called to that same path. That when Paul says he is an ambassador in chains for the gospel, 
He's saying something about our lives, about the shape of the life of the church, the shape of what it means to be a Christian, that Paul is concluding with a note that should actually grab us and say, oh yes, for us, life in the world, since the coming of Christ, awaiting his return, is life in the wilderness. As we have been reminded of many times in First Peter in our evening service, it is life of pilgrimage, of being sojourners, being strangers, being exiles in the world, awaiting the new creation to come. And so what Paul says here is actually intended for our encouragement. This is how I want to conclude this series, because I am convinced this is how Paul intends to include his letter, conclude his letter, reminding us that all along what he has been doing is encouraging us for that life, awaiting the return of Christ. We're going to see this in three parts. First, that it is in fact a letter from prison. I've already been introducing that, but we're going to see that a bit more. Second, that it is a letter of benediction. It simply means blessing, but I want to use that word benediction to emphasize how official this is. It's not just a wish, it's something happening. A letter of benediction, and then third, a letter of encouragement. First, a letter from prison. Paul is in prison. We already noted this, verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Then he says this in verse 21, which is really where our focus begins. So that you also may know how I, am do, how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Paul here refers to the one who is delivering this letter. And he knows that the church in Ephesus is going to want to know more about how Paul is doing. And so he says, look, you have what's in the letter, but he'll also be able to tell you more. And then he gives us a summary statement of why he has sent Tychicus in the first place why he has sent this letter. And in this summary statement, we ought to hear Paul's way of summarizing why the letter to the Ephesians exists at all. Verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. What is the purpose of all of this? To encourage your hearts. We'll speak more about that in a moment. And then in verses 23 and 24, He gives a benediction, a blessing. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Prison, benediction, encouragement. Let's linger for a moment over the fact that all of this is coming from Paul in prison. What is the circumstance he is in? In verses 19 and 20, before those concluding words, remember, he's saying, pray for me, pray that I will speak boldly. And the reason he needs the prayer to speak boldly is that his imprisonment means he's going to be tempted to just say whatever will make the Roman authorities happy, to say whatever it will take to get out of these circumstances. And so he's saying, pray that I will say what I need to pray, or what I need to say. And in fact, his suffering is such that the church is concerned about him. That's why he's writing that you may know how I am. It's not just a general, you know, give you a personal update. It's they've heard that the apostle, the one who brought them to gospel, is imprisoned, and they want to know what is going on. Paul's place, we could summarize, is a place of weakness. If you were to simply look at Paul's circumstances and ask, is the gospel succeeding? You'd be tempted to say no. He's in prison. 
It looks like it's failing. It looks like the gospel is weak. On the other hand, what is it that Paul says he ought to be bold to proclaim? I want you to hear these words again and hear them this time, not as emphasizing the weakness of Paul's circumstance, but rather hear the tone with which he is describing what he is supposed to be proclaiming. To that end, verse, beginning the second half of verse 18, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now the word boldly here is a big deal. Why bold? Because there's something about the mystery of the gospel that emphasizes this boldness. And the key word is then in verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains. What is an ambassador? Well, an ambassador is one who represents the authority who has sent him or her. The ambassador is the one who represents the authority of a foreign government, a government that is far away. And we must remember just how uh, representative, how um, authoritative that representation would have been in this time and place. There was not an easy way to communicate with the authority that sent you. You couldn't just check in, hey, what do you want me to say? Rather, when you were sent, you were really given authority to represent that, the, the, the one who sent you. Paul is saying he is an ambassador like that, but an ambassador in this case for whom? Well, this is for our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word ambassador assumes what about Christ? If you're an ambassador for him, then what must he be? He is a ruler. He is the one who has ascended into heaven. Paul is saying in prison that actually he's an ambassador for the one who is really in charge. At the time of the Roman Empire, who is the one who had all the ambassadors? It was Caesar. He was the one who sent ambassadors. He's the one who had that authority. Paul is speaking with that language about Christ. And he's speaking of that lordship of Christ in a way that confronts those authorities of the world. He is claiming he ought to be bold because there is real authority that he represents. Now, why are we spending so much time on this? Well, do you sense the tension that is emerging, the picture of who Paul is, what the gospel is? On the one hand, he is in prison. On the other hand, he is an ambassador for our Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns over all. And one of the most important pictures that has emerged in this letter to the Ephesians is that those two things are not in conflict. They are not in tension with each other. That it is precisely in prison that the glory of the gospel is announced. What is that mystery of the gospel? Remember, in Ephesians, mystery has not meant something we can't understand, something we don't know. Mystery is referring to something that once was not revealed, but now has been revealed in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says that the mystery of the gospel is this uniting of Jews and Gentiles, that the church is the place where that which once was divided is united. In verses 9 and 10, he refers to this being something that's being made known to rulers and authorities in a way that referred to Rome, but also to the spiritual forces of darkness behind Rome. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Let's read this in particular. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is this mystery of the gospel but God's plan to unite all things in Christ? 
All of those were things that Rome claimed to be doing. Rome was the power that was uniting the nations. Rome was the one that ruled and governed all things. And here is Paul in prison, imprisoned by whom? Roman powers, announcing a gospel, the mystery of the gospel, that our Lord Jesus Christ is in fact the one doing all of those things. He is the only one who can unite human beings. He is the only one that can defeat all the forces of evil in the world. He is the only one who can unite ultimately all things in him, for he is the word, the revelation, the making known of the one who created all things. Paul is in prison and announcing that glorious gospel. Brothers and sisters, are you okay with that? Are you okay? with the gospel of Jesus Christ, in those terms, as being a matter of him being the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one ruling over all things, coming from one who is in prison. Do you know why this is a big question? Are you okay with that being the case because our Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns, accomplished all things through the path of suffering and the cross? Are you okay with it continuing to be the case in the church today that we proclaim a suffering Savior? That we proclaim victory over evil through the path of suffering and death? You see, we have to ask if we're okay with this. Because when you put your faith in this gospel, this shapes the life of the church. We are called as the church of Jesus Christ, whether in times of flourishing and blessing or in times of suffering and affliction, whether in times of having relative influence in the world or of feeling relatively beleaguered and weak in the world, we are called at all times to be representing this Jesus proclaimed by this Paul. That means that even as we proclaim that Jesus is the King of Kings, We do so as those who are strangers and sojourners, pilgrims in this world. We do so as those who refuse to grasp after the power and influence of the world. We do so as those who expect, even when the church is faithful, there will be times where she appears very weak. Even if the church is doing what she ought to do, there will be times where she does not appear to be influential. There are too many voices today who want to say, Church, if you were doing things right, you'd have power. If you were doing things right, you'd have influence out there. If you were doing things right, you'd have more power in Rome. I mean Washington. If you were doing things right, you see how this goes. Paul is in prison. The scriptures are clear from beginning to end. You cannot look at the church's external circumstances and conclude if the church is being faithful or not. There are plenty of times where the church is perfectly faithful and she suffers. There are plenty of times where the church is prospering and has influence, and she is in fact spiritually decaying. You could not look at our Lord Jesus Christ and conclude, was he being faithful when he was suffering, when he was being rejected, when he was on the cross? And this is true for the church as well. Brothers and sisters, this theme has emerged from Ephesians far more than I expected. It has surprised me It's fun when that happens. That's usually a good sign that we're being willing to be confronted by God's word when it surprises us. It has surprised me how much Ephesians has shaped this way of relating to the world. On the one hand, 
We cannot flee the world. We don't retreat. We don't go to our bubble to escape the world. We announce that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords over all things. And we live in all of life under the lordship of Christ. But at the same time, it is a kingdom that is not of this world. It is different than the kingdoms of this world. It, it rules, it governs by different means. And we are called to testify that even as when our apostle Paul was in prison. Paul's letter challenges us to embrace both of these. A kingdom that confronts the world, but in a mode entirely different from the world. In the world, but not of it. A letter from prison. Second, this letter from prison is also a letter of benediction, of blessing. Now, don't transition too quickly here. Keep all these things together. Keep all of them in mind. Here is Paul suffering in prison, and in the midst of that suffering, announcing blessing. This is his confidence in the blessing. The fact that it is otherworldly, that it is God's doing coming into the world, that here he is in a place of fearful suffering, announcing, well, how did our passage end? Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Four parts of the blessing. Peace, love, faith, and grace. Now, unfortunately, if you have, especially if you've grown up as a Christian, all four of those words just whoop, zip through your head in one ear, out the other. They're gone. All right, hold on. Slow down. Slow down. Verse 23. Peace be to the brothers. The word brothers here would have been heard in a, what we would call a gender-inclusive way, brothers and sisters, but it was a particular term used in Roman culture to speak of inheritance. So from prison, he's speaking of something here that is yours. It's yours by the announcement of God's promise. What he announces is peace. Peace. How should we hear this word? We often hear it simply as meaning the absence of conflict, If there is no war, there is peace. That's fine. That's part of it. We ought to hear the word peace any time in the New Testament as those who also read our Old Testaments. And so we ought to hear the word peace as echoing Old Testament language of shalom. And so peace, not simply as absence of conflict, but peace as life as it is meant to be. Wholeness, the the world remade. Paul is ultimately here announcing the promise of the new creation that we taste and experience in the present. This might surprise some of you because we've had this talk many times about peace. We actually need to go back to the absence of conflict definition because this is one of the ways Paul has used the word in this letter. In Ephesians 2 verse 14, begin at verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is that, what is the word peace there speaking of? Well, it's speaking of, in the context preceding it, peace with God. But the point he's making more than that is peace with each other. That there was division among human beings and what God does in Christ is he provides the way, the one in whom Jews and Gentiles, those who were divided, can be united together. And so when Paul here announces peace, he is announcing, he is announcing that thing, 
that gift that God gives that binds us together. He's announcing the possibility, the promise of community, of fellowship, of human beings loving and serving each other in the body of Christ. That that word peace is announcing as a blessing, as, well, the key word is as an announcement, that life of the church. Peace is that which holds the church together. How about the word love? You know, when love is announced, it's really easy to hear it and think you automatically have a sense of what it's referring to. But then, you think about it more, many of us thought of different things, actually. Is this God's love for us? Is this our love for God? Is it our love for each other? And the answer, of course, is that it is all of them. But it's important that when you hear the word love, you hear it sort of uh, exploding, expanding in that way, as being all of it, God loving us, us loving God, us loving each other, and God's love being the source of all of it. It's summed up in chapter 5, verse 2, when Paul says to walk in love as Christ loved us. That Christ loving us is on the one hand a unique thing that only he could do at the cross, but it is also something he invites, he draws us into a life that he gives to us. Chapter 2, verse 4, the great love with which he loved us. Chapter 3, verse 17, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Chapter 3, verse 19, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. It's all of it. God's love for us, our response of love, the love for each other in the church. And then he ties that to faith. Very important. The moment we speak of love in this way, you know love must translate into living. To speak of love speaks of our doing. It speaks of our attitude toward each other, our attitude toward God in a way that forms how we live. It must be seen in our actions. Love for God, love for neighbor means doing certain things. And there could be a temptation to veer into, well, now what was once a blessing is now simply saying what we have to do. And so the word faith reminds us that no, all of this is received as a gift It is God's promise. All of it is a life he is working in us. And all of that then is combined beautifully in verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Are any of you worried about that verse? Read it one more time. Grace be with who? Who here gets grace? Who's the grace being announced for? All who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Uh, Do you see the worry that could intrude? Is my love incorruptible? Do I, I mean, is it, what do you mean by incorruptible? Like it lasts forever, it can't fade, it never wavers. What does this mean? And there could be worry that's what's being smuggled in here. The very last word of the letter is some kind of works righteousness. You, You have to generate this kind of love. Well, this is why we just spent what might have felt like too much time to you talking about what we mean by love. God's love for us, us for him, etc. It's all from God. It's all given to us by him. And as one writer says so beautifully, the reason for this language is that our love is incorruptible not because our love is so great, but because the object of our love is incorruptible. Because the one to whom we are looking, our Lord Jesus Christ, is incorruptible. Because he has been raised from the dead as part of the new creation, dwelling at God's right hand, promising his return and that new creation to come. And it is because of the object of our love, the one to whom we look, ultimately by faith, 
that then we are able to persevere on that path. Love is incorruptible because the object of love is incorruptible. That is the blessing announced. Now, I'm curious, are we hearing this? And if this might be my fault, not yours. We're going we're to share the blame 50-50. Are you hearing this purely as doctrinal discussion out there? Remember the circumstance in which Paul is writing this. He's imprisoned. And he's doing so aware that he is imprisoned as part of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Aware that he's writing to churches who are called to share in that same life path. Aware that he's writing to churches who are suffering in all sorts of ways. Whether it be because of simply the challenge to live by faith in the trials and afflictions of life in general. Or whether it be because they are being persecuted because of the temptations they face. He is aware of all of this. He's aware of it acutely because it is his experience in prison. And it is into those circumstances that he announces this benediction. This blessing of peace, love, faith, and grace. We noted at the beginning of this letter, by the way, where there was also a benediction, bookends for the letter telling us here is the point, we noted at the beginning of this letter that though it was wrote, written to Ephesus, there were signs that Paul expected this letter to be passed around, to be shared elsewhere. That it was written to a particular church, but it was one he actually did not know real well because it had been many years since he had been there. And this had in view, from the beginning, the church in general. In other words, this was written for you. And it was written for you in your circumstances right now. It is written for you, having in mind in the sovereign ordaining of all of these things by the work of the Holy Spirit, the very thing that is on your heart and mind at this very moment, making it difficult to listen to the sermon. This was written for you. Verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. That you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Two words there that we need a moment on. Your heart. You must hear this. It's Paul speaking a Jewish scholar who knows the scriptures. Where in the Old Testament, heart represents the whole person. It is all of you. In fact, Israel thought of the person simply as a whole person, not primarily divided up in parts, heart, soul, spirit, mind, all these kinds of things, though we would refer to those things as referring to the whole. The point being to emphasize the whole person. So when he says hearts, it's a way of saying you, all of you, every part of you, who you are as a human being. What is for your hearts? To encourage. Encourage. What does that word mean? Well, the Greek word here translated encourage has at the center of it the idea of exhorting, urging toward action. Exhorting, urging toward doing what you are called to do. Being and doing what you need to be and do. Now, it it, that includes, appropriately, all that we think of with the English word encourage. We often hear the word and we think, feeling encouraged. Right? You say, and that really encouraged me. 
Usually we mean we feel encouraged. Now that's included, that is good, but the primary force here is not that. There are going to be times in the Christian life where you have something before you that you are called to do, called to persevere through, called to hold on to faith while experiencing, and what you need most of all, and it might not be what you want most of all, but what you need most of all is not to feel encouraged, but to persevere, to have the courage to do what you're called to do, to have the courage to be what you are called to be, to have the courage to persevere on the path that it is so easy to turn off of. Paul wrote this letter to enable you to do that, to encourage, to give you courage, to enable you to do as a gift that God is giving to do what you are called to do. Now, put all of that together. Paul in prison, aware of the suffering of the church. Paul in prison, announcing a blessing, says now that the point to all of it all along, the reason he sent this guy with the letter in the first place was to encourage. So brothers and sisters, as we conclude this morning, both this sermon and our time in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I want to conclude for a few minutes the way Paul says we ought to conclude. That is, by all of this now being inflected, interpreted as his encouragement to you. I'm going to list a few things. And there's always a danger with a list. When I do a list, what I worry about here is you're thinking, you're trying to figure out which one applies to you, right? Which one of those is me? It's not what I'm doing. I'm going to list some things. But what these are, are dimensions of the Christian life. The one thing that is the life of the church. The one thing that is our calling to live in union with Christ. And I'm going to list these circumstances, not so that you can divide them up or figure out, wait, who is he talking about now, or is that me? But to broaden, to focus, our sense of this is the sort of thing Paul has been addressing all along. When, in the Christian life, you feel like you have reason to doubt the grace of God. Now those words are easy theology words to say. You'll experience, whether it be something you're stuck in right now, some, the, the messed up sinfulness of this world, something in your past about which there is shame. When tempted to doubt the grace of God, Paul has written, not as a theological treatise, first of all, in the abstract, but as his announcement to encourage you that you are saved by grace through faith. And this is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. And he has written that for your encouragement. When church life seems impossible, you look around, you've heard all the things Paul has said in Ephesians about the church being the place where that which divides the world is to be united. You have any length of time together with a group of people, all the weaknesses you'll discover, all the ways we sin against each other. We must hear for our encouragement that Paul has announced that this is what God is doing. That the great mystery of the gospel is that he is building his church. Ephesians 2 verse 19. 
For through Him we both have access to the one Spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He has announced as promise for your encouragement that this is simply who you are as the church, fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Encourage, remember, what does it mean? To feel encouraged. Well, it's fun when that happens. To do what we're called to do. To be what we're called to be. When you are tempted to grasp after the power of the world, it is tempting, whether it be in times in the church's life of feeling oppressed, whether it be in times of like, wow, maybe we have a chance at doing something out there, to grasp after earthly power. Ephesians comes to us and encourages us that you do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of darkness, against spiritual evil, and that your fellow human beings are your fellow human beings for whom you're eager to announce this good news. That word has been given to give us the courage to refuse to grasp after what the world grasps after. When you're burdened by spiritual darkness, God has announced to us through Ephesians that we have the armor of God Again, we won't always feel that way, but that we might do and be what God has called us to do and be. When you're tempted to give in to the destructive paths of the world, you see the path. It has a kind of allure. God has announced to us that we are called to be imitators of God as beloved children. Ephesians 5 verse 1. On the one hand, a challenge to imitate God, to take the way that is wise and good, but full of confidence. It is as his beloved children. Again, to encourage the announcement, you are his beloved child, feel encouraged. What a joy when we are able to. But also, to have the courage to persevere on that path. Or when doubting the goodness of God's providence as you look to the future. One writer, this phrase isn't that impressive, but I loved it and I want to quote him. I've loved the work of Michael Allen on Ephesians and his explaining what is happening in the benediction, he says this, that you may be confident wherever life may turn and whatever events may transpire. Wherever life may turn, whatever events may transpire. That all that has been spoken in this letter is yours. That all of it is announced as promise. And that all of it is, even when you do not feel courageous, You don't feel encouraged the way you desire to do. That God is at work in you by His Spirit to empower you, to enable you, to strengthen you, to persevere along that path. Indeed, remember back the words all the way back from chapter 1, Ephesians 1 verse 10. The bigness of what God is doing. You know, I, I love this combination in Scripture. It's how God speaks to Israel. It's how He speaks to the church today. That there is this bigness of what God is doing in which you are included. That he addresses you personally, but he does so by announcing this glorious thing. That he has revealed, Ephesians 1 verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You are part of that. He has included you in that. In all the things, all the circumstances of your life in this precise moment, and in God's promise for the new creation to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these months that you have given to us in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We thank you for the clarity with which we are able to hear this word speaking to us as your gathered church. You alone know perfectly all that we face, all that we are tempted by, all that we are challenged by, all that makes it seem difficult to go on in faith. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage our hearts, that you would address our whole being, and that you would give us the courage we need to persevere by faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.